Due to the nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child abuse, child death, and murder. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Today's episode spans generations. We're going to start in 1957, in a tiny thicket in Philadelphia, the place where a young boy's body was found hidden inside a cardboard box. For almost 70 years, detectives struggled just to figure out his identity. Then came this news in December of 2022. Now, through detective work and DNA analysis, police say they've learned the name of the child, who for decades was known to Philadelphians as the boy in the box, and police say they'll publicly release the child's name today. It was the biggest breakthrough in the case in decades, the information that some detectives spent their entire careers searching for. Without the hard work, dedication, and passion, and the doggedness of the many we would not be here today to give America's formerly unknown child, Joseph Augustus Zarelli, a voice. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, I have a returning guest with me to help tell a very timely story. Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. Hello, and thank you for having me back. As you may have noticed, this may have been covering some really special cases on disappearances for Missing and Unidentified Persons Month. And I'm really excited to team up with you for this one, which is in honor of National Missing Children's Day on May 25th. For more information, and most importantly, to find out ways to help, please visit spotify.com disappearances. I'm so happy to have you here to help and to honor this day. So I'll be going through the main plot points of the story, and Sarah will be jumping in to add extra context, statistics, and expertise on missing person and homicide investigations. And we have a whole lot of story to cover, almost 70 years worth, so let's get into it right after this. In this episode, we're talking about Joseph Augustus Zarelli. He's best known as the boy in the box. But he had another nickname, too, America's Unknown Child. For 66 years, people all over the country wondered, who is this boy? Where is his family? And who's going to advocate for him? And the answer to that last question was, almost everyone. Both law enforcement and regular citizens of Philadelphia saw this boy as their own. They held a funeral. They kept his memory alive. Some investigators spent their entire careers trying to find out who he was so they could bring him justice. Now, we finally know his name. But can we actually consider his case closed? As we'll soon learn, there's still a lot of loose threads. But before we get to that... 
let's start at the beginning. It's February 26th, 1957, a gloomy day in Philadelphia, cold outside, kind of drizzly. Inside Philly's police department, the phone rings. The caller is a man who says yesterday he was in a part of Philadelphia called Fox Chase. It's this isolated country area. On one side of the main road is a thicket that's basically treated as a trash dump with a lot of boxes and plastic and junk piled up. And this caller says something along the lines of, when I was there in the woods, I saw a cardboard box and there was a head sticking out of it. He says maybe it was a doll. Maybe it was a human. He doesn't know. He got scared, so he ran away and didn't tell anyone at first. But then he heard a news report about a four-year-old girl who'd gone missing from a nearby town. And he thought, what if she's in the box? So he called in the tip. The police send a patrolman to the scene ASAP. The officer walks into the thicket and finds the box. The head is still sticking out. And right away, the policeman knows it's not a doll. Of course, it's not the missing girl either. So her case is unrelated, but her name was Mary Jane Barker, and she's eventually found dead of accidental causes. It's pretty easy to find information online if you want to go look it up. Going back to what is in the box, it's the body of a little boy, naked and wrapped in a blanket. The officer calls for backup. Once the medical examiner, Dr. Joseph Spellman, gets there, They lift the body out and get a better look. Dr. Spellman estimates the boy is between four and six years old. He's extremely thin and malnourished, only 30 pounds. That's more like what the average two-year-old weighs. Since it's been so cold, his body has barely started to decompose, which makes police feel optimistic about being able to identify him. But that also makes it difficult to determine a time of death. Still, it's pretty clear how he died. He's covered in bruises. When Spellman does an autopsy, he determines the boy was likely beaten to death. Some other details stick out too. His nails have recently been trimmed. His hair has been cut in a shabby way. It was probably either done post-mortem or right before he died because there are chunks of hair stuck to his chest. And here's one thing that's going to be important. There's brown residue coating the boy's esophagus. It could mean he threw up shortly before he died. So, police think this boy probably experienced some level of neglect and abuse in his lifetime. That would explain the malnutrition and the bruises. Sarah, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, obviously it just sounds horrific, but the unfortunate reality is that in most of these cases, the perpetrator of the abuse is likely someone the child knows. According to 2019 data from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, nearly 80% of child fatalities involve parents, either acting alone, together, or with other individuals. Problem is, if the boy was killed by a family member, it's unlikely they're going to come forward to identify him or report him missing. It's up to detectives to figure out what happened. They start with two items that were found with the boy, the box and the blanket. The box originally held a white baby bassinet. 
It has a shipping label that says it was sent from Indiana to a JCPenney in Upper Darby, a western suburb of Philly. It was one of exactly 12 the store sold, but this JCPenney has a cash-only policy, so they have no way to trace the 12 buyers. Around mid-March, the FBI gets involved. Eventually, they put out a call asking anyone who bought one of these bassinets to contact them. Guess how many people come forward? 11. But police rule them all out as suspects. The 12th buyer, someone who could be the boy's killer, is never identified. Next up is the blanket. Police take it to the Philadelphia Textile Institute for analysis, only to learn it was mass-produced, and there are hundreds of thousands of them out there. The only weird thing about the blanket, which I didn't mention earlier, is that it had been cut in half. But investigators don't know why. Now, this is where an investigator named Bill Kelly enters the story. He's the head of Philadelphia's police identification unit and a fingerprinting expert. He's also a 29-year-old husband and dad. He goes to church on Sundays and sometimes moonlights as a wedding photographer. And for Bill, seeing this child beaten and left in a box in the woods horrifies him beyond measure. He makes it his mission to figure out who's responsible. When the boy's body was first found, Bill was immediately thinking, when people are born, their footprints are taken and put on their birth certificate. So he gets ink prints of the boy's feet. Then he starts taking those to hospitals in the area to compare them with the birth records on file. And since it's 1957, before police have computer analysis or databases, He's doing all the comparisons by eye. So, of course, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's a huge chance for human error in a situation like this. But I also don't want to discount how hard he's working for this case. I mean, Bill ends up spending nine years sifting through documents after work hours, which I have to assume was unpaid. Of course, today, he could plug the prints into a database and have answers in just a few minutes. I know it feels like a losing battle, but it's all done in good faith, and that's what really matters. Right. So while Bill is trying to identify the boy through these records, other officers are hoping to find someone who recognizes him. They go to every foster home, orphanage, and hospital in the area. Nobody knows who he is. At this point, police really have no choice but to start appealing to the public. And the way they do it is pretty controversial. A few weeks after finding the boy's body, the Philly PD posts flyers all over Philadelphia asking for information about him. On street corners, in grocery stores, everywhere you can think of. Which doesn't seem so unique, right? Except these posters have Joseph's autopsy photos on them. Listen, I know these images sound really shocking, and I'm sure they were to the people that saw them at places like the grocery store. But you have to think, what other option did the police have? This is the only photo they have of him, and honestly, their best chance to identify him. And in a lot of ways, the posters work. They definitely get people's attention. There are stories from adults who later say, I saw this poster when I went to the grocery store with my mom when I was 10. 
and they talk about how deeply that affected them. More than one person went on to become a police officer and actually work on the boy's case. These pictures are also probably part of why people felt so connected to Joseph. Later, when the case gets national attention, people call him America's unknown child. He gets this crowdsourced love and support. And then, to get an even wider reach, police enclose flyers with those same autopsy photos in everyone's utility bills. I honestly think this is so smart. I mean, we're talking about a time before cell phones, Amber Alerts, or social media. Police had to get creative to reach people. On my very first episode of Disappearances, I cover the case of Aton Pates. He was the first missing child printed on a milk carton. That happened in 1979, so this story predates that by over 20 years. Totally. Okay, by summer, the boy's body is starting to decompose, so a funeral is held in late July. The cemetery donates the plot. An investigator donates a suit for him to be buried in. The pallbearers are homicide detectives. That really stuck out to me. I've never heard of anything like that before. Yeah, when I first heard this, it honestly made me so emotional. It's just so kind. I don't think I've ever heard of this exact situation before, but there are definitely detectives who go above and beyond, and this is one of those situations. And not only that, look at how the local community came together to partner with the police. It seems like everyone's rooting for him. Right. It makes it so clear that in life, this boy had no one, but now in death, the community and the police have sort of become his surrogate family. For the next four years, it's a lot of police getting their hopes up, then hitting dead ends. A lot of tips that go nowhere, a lot of frustration. So it's 1961 now, and there's another investigator who's fixated on the boy in the box. His name is Remington Bristow. He works in the medical examiner's office and has been on the case since the beginning. He's always felt disturbed by the boy's death, and four years into the investigation, he's getting desperate for answers, which takes him down some interesting paths, like going to a psychic. I know how it sounds, but let's talk about the facts. In a 2012 survey of 102 experienced law enforcement professionals, about 30% reported that their agency had recruited a psychic for help in a homicide and or missing person case. But less than a quarter of those respondents said that they found the information from the psychic helpful. One of the study respondents who worked as a criminal profiler in the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit clarified that the use of psychics is the last resort for desperate agencies. It also telegraphs to the public and the offender that the police have absolutely no leads of value. Still, if investigators receive a tip from anyone, psychic or not, I think it is their duty to follow up on it. And this psychic leads Bristow somewhere that might, keyword might, be important. She tells him she has a vision of a cabin with this certain kind of porch in this certain area of Philadelphia. Bristow follows this lead, and it turns out the psychic has led him to a foster home, and it's a little over a mile from where the boy's body was found. Detectives searched it already at the beginning of the investigation when they were looking into orphanages and foster homes. They interviewed the couple who ran the place, Arthur and Catherine Nicoletti, and ruled them out as suspects. But now, 
Bristow isn't so sure. See, the Nicolettis have a daughter named Anna Marie. She's in her early to mid-twenties, and she's had four children. Three died shortly after birth. One lived to be three, then died of electrocution on a department store nickel ride when it malfunctioned. Although there's no proof of this, Bristow wonders if maybe Anna Marie had more than four kids, and the boy in the box was one of them. But honestly, at this point, Bristow seems desperate enough to latch onto small, circumstantial clues, and he's so consumed by this case, it borders on obsessive. He carries copies of Joseph's autopsy photos with him everywhere. Also, there's this thing called a death mask, essentially a plastic cast that detectives made of Joseph's face before they buried him so they could keep a 3D version of his likeness. Now, Bristow keeps it in his office. Sometimes, he sits in there, holding the mask, and gazing at it. That same year, in 1961, there's an estate sale at the Nicoletti Foster Home, and Bristow thinks this is the perfect opportunity to go look around. So he does, and in the basement he finds a white bassinet. But there are lots of white bassinets, right? Except then he goes out to the yard, where there's a clothesline, with a bunch of blankets hung up to dry. All these blankets have been cut in half to fit children's cots. Now, call me a skeptic, but this does sound like a big coincidence to me. Finding a white bassinet, finding blankets cut in half, I'm just not sure it means anything. Well, Bristow thinks it's proof. He tries to interview the Nicolettis, but they refuse. At one point, Arthur says he shouldn't have to explain why there's a bassinet in his house. Under any other circumstances, it'd be a totally innocuous item. It doesn't mean a crime occurred, which is true. And having blankets that are cut in half is not probable cause. But Bristow never lets this go. He pushes the theory for decades, even after he retires from the force. He convinces some active duty officers to question the Nicolettis again, but it never goes anywhere. Bristow eventually passes away without any real answers. While the Nicoletti foster home lead kind of becomes Bristow's legacy, Bill Kelly goes in another direction. Remember, he's head of the Philly PD's identification unit. In 1965, he's still focused on figuring out Joseph's name. Bill's shuffling through newspaper articles from around the time the boy was found. And he finds this report about a group of Hungarian refugees who immigrated to the United States in 1956. In the photo is a boy he thinks looks exactly like the boy in the box. He gets so excited, thinking, he's Hungarian. That's why nobody's identifying him. So he contacts Immigration and Naturalization Services in Philly and asks for the records for Hungarian immigrants from 1956. They hand him 15,000 photos. He sifts through 11,200 before he finds the one he's looking for. The exact boy from the newspaper article. Now Bill knows this boy's name and his family came to the U.S. through Philly, then went to North Carolina. Bill talks to North Carolina authorities who agree to look for the kid. And they find him. The boy is now a teenager, happily living his life. Definitely not the boy in the box. 
It's a huge letdown, one that pretty much signals the end of the investigation because nothing consequential happens for decades. So let's jump all the way to the mid-1990s. We're reaching the point in the investigation where we're almost 40 years in, so Bristow is gone, and a lot of the original investigators on the case, like Bill Kelly, have retired. I think it really is amazing to see how these investigations can become multi-generational. Pennsylvania police normally retire after at least 20 years of service, or between the ages of 50 and 60. So when cases are cold for 20, 30, 40 plus years, detectives have to pass the torch on to younger officers. Now, there are obviously pros and cons to this. These officers who've been working on the case for decades sometimes are the experts, but a fresh pair of eyes might see something no one else has before. And in this case, the officer who grabs that torch is Tom Augustine. He is a veteran on the force, and in 1998, he and the current police captain reopened the Boy in the Box case. They start right where Remington Bristow left off, with the Nicolettis. Tom Augustine needs to determine if Anna Marie is the boy's mom, like Bristow thought. But the only way to do that is with DNA. He needs a court order to get a sample from Anna Marie and another order to exhume the boy's body and try to get DNA from the remains. As it stands, he can't do either of those things. But all hope is not lost because this is when another group enters the fray, the VDOC Society. They're based in Philadelphia and named after a French detective from the 1800s who was known for going undercover and solving difficult cases. The members are former law enforcement professionals who volunteer to help with cold cases. By the way, one of the co-founders, Bill Fleischer, was a child when those flyers with the autopsy photos were posted all over Philly. He saw them and was so haunted by the image, he devoted his life to law enforcement. The VDOC Society is well-respected and has helped solve cold cases in the past. They tend to have more time on their hands than active police officers, so they can look into old evidence and campaign for things like court orders, which Tom Augustine desperately needs. In 1998, the society votes on whether or not to take on the Boy in the Box case, and it just so happens that our friend Bill Kelly is casting a ballot because he's a member. That might be part of why the vote comes back as a resounding yes. Now the VDOC Society is working in tandem with Tom Augustine. Thanks to the Society's sway, they get a court order to exhume the boy's body and collect DNA evidence. It's exciting, but it's also a long shot. Now, it's important to know that DNA does degrade over time. To preserve DNA, it has to be stored very carefully. There are various storage methods, but almost all of them involve refrigerating DNA and keeping it in a special liquid solution. DNA that's stored dry and at room temperature can begin to degrade in just three months. So after over 40 years in a coffin, it's going to be really hard to get a usable sample from the boy's remains. In the end, they are able to get a partial DNA sample from one of his teeth, It's mitochondrial DNA, which means it can only be used to identify the boy's mother or any relatives on his maternal side. But this is 1998, when the National DNA Database is still in development. 
The only way they can actually use this sample is by identifying a potential relative, getting DNA from them, and comparing it to the boys. It takes another nine years to do this, so we're in 2007. That's when a judge rules there are sufficient grounds to get DNA from Anna Marie Nicoletti, who's living in a nursing home. Officers go there, get a saliva sample, and send it for testing. Then, they wait on pins and needles to finally see if Anna Marie is the little boy's mom. In 2007, the Philly PD tests Anna Marie Nicoletti's DNA against a partial sample from the boy in the box, and it's not a match. Which doesn't necessarily mean the boy was never at the foster home, just that Anna Marie is definitely not his biological mom. That's a wrap on that theory. Now, here's a full pivot to another theory— It's one that kind of comes out of left field after they exhume the boy's body, but before they get DNA from Anna Marie. So bear with us. We're going back to the year 2000 when the Philly PD gets a call from a Cincinnati psychiatrist. The doctor won't say too much over the phone, but he says something along the lines of, I have a patient with an interesting story regarding a cold case. The psychiatrist communicates with the police through letters for months but it takes authorities two years to actually talk to this patient in person. I don't know why. Maybe because they have other active cases or the logistics are difficult. After 50 years, a long-shot lead probably isn't their top priority. It's not until 2002 that Tom Augustine and Bill Kelly, who is retired but still helping on the case, go to the psychiatrist's office to meet this woman. The pseudonym she's given in some of the source material is Mary, and she tells them a gut-wrenching story. She says she grew up in Philadelphia in the 1950s, and her parents were neglectful and sexually abusive. Around 1954, she and her mom drove to a house in Philly where her mom exchanged an envelope of money for a baby boy, who they called Jonathan. According to Mary, Jonathan lived in the basement. Her parents abused him, he never learned to speak, and he never went outside. Mary knew this was not normal, but she was also a child herself. I think she was around 12 or 13 when they got him, and it was implicit to her that she needed to keep it a secret. By February 1957, and remember that's when the boy's body was found, Jonathan had been living with them for two and a half years. Mary says that February... Her mom brought Jonathan up from the basement for a bath. She asked Mary to trim his nails, so she did. Apparently, he was crying a lot and her mom was frustrated. They had baked beans for dinner. Jonathan threw up, and Mary's mom got so angry that she beat him to death. Mary was understandably freaked out. She hid in her bedroom and later heard her parents cutting Jonathan's hair like the snip-snip of scissors. The next morning, Mary's mom forced her to tag along while she dumped Jonathan's body in the woods. It's a horrific, traumatic story. And, of course, the police take it seriously. 
And as part of taking it seriously, they have to ask themselves, could Mary be making this up? We have to remember that this is a high-profile case, and people can easily construct narratives based off details from the news, documentaries, books, whatever it might be. It's hard to find stats about how often this happens, but we know that there are some people, like Henry Lee Lucas, who became notorious for issuing false confessions based on details he read or heard. That said, false memories or recovered memories are also a thing. Over time, a person's recollection of events can get mixed up or embellished until they fully believe that something happened, when in reality, it just didn't. These types of memories are often recovered during therapy, when the patient is asked to remember a repressed traumatic event from their past. Julia Shaw and Kevin Felstead, psychologists and experts in the field of false memory, found that during this process, patients may inadvertently invent stories that they then believe are true. This happened with a few highly publicized cases in the 1990s, where allegations uncovered during therapy were proven to be false. Shaw and Felstead also noticed a lot of these recovered allegations had similar themes. Normally, the person knows their alleged attacker, and their memories involve sexual abuse. But this is less about whether Mary's memories are true or false, and more about how difficult it must be for the detectives to figure out how to move forward. How much weight can they put into Mary's claims? It's really hard to say, especially considering how much media attention this case got. Right, Mary could have read about the case in newspapers or books and then cobbled together this story to fit the facts. The boy was malnourished, he'd been beaten, his nails were trimmed, his hair was cut. That was all public knowledge, except for one detail, which is the baked beans and Jonathan throwing up. Remember during the autopsy, the medical examiner found brown residue in the boy's throat as if he'd vomited before he died? That info became public in 1999. Mary is telling this story in 2002, but the psychiatrist swears her whole story has been consistent since 1989. If we believe this psychiatrist, it seems Mary did have a detail that wasn't yet public at the time she originally told her story. And she says she didn't come forward earlier because she was so traumatized. Bill Kelly finds Mary's story very convincing. But Tom Augustine, he doesn't say it's false. He just says it's impossible to verify. So, once again, a dead end. For all intents and purposes, the case goes cold. Then, in 2014, Bill Kelly passes away meaning Bristow and Kelly, the two men who championed this case for decades, are both gone. But there's still a city and a whole country that want answers. By 2019, DNA tech has advanced enough that the Philly PD thinks it's time to try again. Investigators exhume the boy's body a second time to try to get a better DNA sample. It takes two and a half years, and they have to work with the FBI and a lab in Europe. But in 2021, they finally get a full, usable sample of his DNA. That's when Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick and Misty Gillis get involved, and they rock. Colleen is a genetic genealogist, the founder and president of Identifinders International, and a member of the VDOC Society. Misty is also a genetic genealogist, and a mom. They're both very driven to give this boy a name 
So they and their team take this DNA sample and upload it to genetic genealogy databases like GEDmatch. We covered these kinds of genealogy sites and GEDmatch in particular in our episode Finding the Golden State Killer. So give it a listen if you want more of a deep dive. For now, all you need to know is that Misty can use these databases to search for people who have similar DNA to the boy in the box. Based on the percentage of similarity, she can determine if someone is related to the boy, and if so, how close that relation is. According to Misty, the closest matches at this time are second or third cousins. Using interviews with these relatives combined with census records, the team creates a family tree. This leads them to a specific group of siblings who are even more closely related to the boy. One of these is such a close match, Misty thinks it could be the boy's biological mother. Misty gets a court order to obtain records of all the children born to this woman. She had six kids, but only two were born prior to 1957, a girl and a boy. Misty gets the boy's birth certificate, which lists the name of his biological father. Then she finds a cousin of his biological father, gets a DNA sample from her, and compares it to the boys to confirm the relation. And finally, after almost 70 years, they know. His name is Joseph Augustus Zarelli. I'll never forget the day that this news broke. I mean, it was everywhere. On my Twitter, all over my Instagram, everyone was talking about this and celebrating. People who thought about this case for decades finally have a name to call him by. And again, the community came together. There was a new gravestone made with Joseph Augustus Zarelli written on it, and a memorial service was held to commemorate the cemetery putting it in. Now, I know it's bittersweet because so many of the investigators who worked on this case aren't around anymore. And even though we now have Joseph's name, there's still a lot we don't know. We do know he was born in January 1953, so he was four when he died. His father was Augustus J. Zarelli, known as Gus. His mother was Mary Elizabeth Abel, but went by Betsy. By the time investigators figure this out, his parents are both dead. We only know the broad strokes of their lives and the circumstances of Joseph's birth. Betsy was 21, working at a theater. Gus was from a local family, but we have no idea when or where they met or how long they were together. It's possible Gus never knew Betsy was pregnant. To complicate things even more, Betsy had a daughter three years before Joseph, who she gave up for adoption. We don't want to make any assumptions, but to me, that raises the possibility that she gave Joseph up for adoption too. If she did, maybe Joseph did go to the Nicoletti foster home, or maybe Betsy needed money, so she sold Joseph to Mary's family and he really did live in their basement. And here's the thing, Gus and Betsy both lived in Philly for the rest of their lives, so they saw those posters, they heard about the investigation, but I just have to think, if Gus never knew Betsy was pregnant, and if Betsy gave Joseph up for adoption when he was a newborn, maybe they saw those posters, but didn't recognize him. I think it's really easy to jump to a conclusion here, but the reality is we just don't know enough. Joseph's biological parents could be totally innocent, or they could have had something to do with this. 
Hopefully one day we'll know. But for now, all we can do is keep asking questions. Right. And there's this element of, you know, we thought the name was the detail that would end those questions, but that isn't really what happened. Still, this story is rapidly developing. As of early 2023, the Philly PD and the FBI say an arrest and conviction could be possible if the perpetrator is still alive, which honestly seems like wishful thinking considering this all happened about 70 years ago. In cases like this, I feel like I'm always at this intersection of hope and probability. Is there hope for a conviction? I think so. Is it probable? I'm not really sure. To me, it does seem like these cases are solved every single day. That's true. I think the main thing I'm left with is how many people claim this boy is their own? I mean, he was called America's unknown child. Millions of people mourned him. The police went to the ends of the earth looking for clues, sending out flyers, sifting through thousands of photos. It's a reminder that these types of efforts do pay off, even if it takes a really, really long time. Yeah, I agree. And this is one of those cases that really does get me emotional. I mean, the way that the police were so dedicated to this case is just honestly heartwarming. You don't always see that. And again, the way that the community really stepped up and never forgot him is just beautiful, which I think is a great opportunity to remind everyone that we do have resources and information on Missing an Unidentified Persons Month at spotify.com disappearances. So if you're curious about more cases like Joseph Augustus Sorelli, or if maybe you yourself have a missing loved one, please check it out. That's spotify.com forward slash disappearances. Carter, thank you again for having me on. Oh, thanks for being with us, Sarah. And thank you again for listening. For more information on how to support cases involving missing children, please visit the website for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. The NICMEC is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to help find missing children, reduce sexual exploitation, and prevent child victimization. For more information on Joseph Augustus Zarelli, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Boy in the Box, The Unsolved Case of America's Unknown Child by David Stout, as well as reporting from Philadelphia Magazine and NBC Philadelphia, extremely helpful to our research. And if you yourself have any information on this case or any homicide in Philadelphia, please call 215-686-TIPS. That's 215-686-8477. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases, Disappearances, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show is developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Ryan O'Leary-Jones and Ali Wicker are our supervising editors, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Karis Allen, edited by Kate Murdoch, 
fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Alex Button, and produced by Aaron Larson. Our hosts are Sarah Turney and me, Carter Roy. <laughs>